going to read this morning from the Gospel of John, chapter 12, verses 12 through 19. The next day, the large crowd that had come to the feast heard that Jesus was coming to Jerusalem. They took palm branches and they went out to meet him, crying, Hosanna, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Blessed is the king of Israel. Jesus found a young donkey and sat on it, as it is written, Do not be afraid, daughter Zion. See, your king is coming, seated on a donkey's colt. At first, his disciples did not understand all of this. Only after Jesus was glorified did they realize that these things had been written about him by what had been done to him. Now the crowd that was with him when he called Lazarus from the tomb and raised him from the dead continued to spread the word. Many people, because they had heard that he had performed this sign, went out to meet him. So the Pharisees said to one another, See, this is getting us nowhere. Look how the whole world has gone after him. Father, I thank you for your word. And I thank you that that day, that Palm Sunday that we call it now, you came into Jerusalem and you turned the world upside down. The way in which you rode in, the manner in which you entered Jerusalem how the crowd embraced you, it was drawn to you. Father, so many things took place on that Palm Sunday that turned culture upside down. It turned conventional wisdom upside down. And Father, you were doing the work of restoration even before your death. And we thank you for that. And God, I pray that you would be with us right now. May your Holy Spirit lead us, and may your Holy Spirit guide us. May You give us wisdom and knowledge from your word. May the words that I speak not be mine, but may they be yours today. And may we learn something about reconciliation, about what it means to be restored back to you and what it means to be restored back to each other. Holy Spirit, would you lead us today? And may you repair relationships today. Relationships that have long been broken because we are following in your ministry, the ministry of reconciliation. We give today to you in Jesus' name, I pray, and all God's people said, amen, amen. Palm Sunday, as you guys saw, our our kids' ministry, our island kids' ministry were, were coming through and waving the palm branches. You guys probably saw them as you came in. One hit my head. I thought something had fallen from the roof. And uh, they, were, they were essentially giving us a picture of what would have happened in Jerusalem that Passover week. And today we begin the celebration and the remembering of Passion Week or Holy Week as it's often called. The week where Jesus chose to go to his death. He chose to go to the cross for you and for me. And, and we're in this series uh, we are calling Restoration. And some of you may be wondering, how in the world can Palm Sunday relate 
to restoration. But I think everything that Jesus did on that Sunday as he entered Jerusalem, there were indicators all throughout of his restoration and how he restores us. And so we're going to be taking a look at this gospel. And my prayer and my hope is is that we would maybe learn something about restoration, the relationship type of restoration that God gives us and that we also can be the people who restore relationship with each other. Now, I just want to, as a way of review, just kind of, uh, just kind of go back and take a look at what we have learned so far in this series called Restoration. Jesus' life was marked by restoration, but it's the kind of restoration that makes us brand new. Jesus didn't come to make something old look better. That's what we do when we restore something. We restore something. We make it look new. We make it look like it's the old new, which doesn't make sense to me sometimes, so that's okay. Uh, but Jesus came to actually make us completely new. He came to make us completely new. And so far, we've talked about the cup of restoration. When we celebrated communion together a few weeks ago, we talked about the fact that rest is in restoration, spiritual rest, a Sabbath-type rest, a deep type of rest. And so we have that kind of restoration. We talked about the restoration of the mind, that we all need to be restored in the mind. And then, uh, of course, last week, if you were here last Sunday night, I spoke briefly about the restoration from God's Word. Because God's Word is, as Timothy said, it's profitable for teaching and reproof and correction. And it's sweeter than the honeycomb, as David said. And so we can be restored by God's Word. But today, I want us to focus on the restoration that takes place through Jesus with relationships, because he was essentially setting the stage for us to be ministers of reconciliation. He was setting up the stage for us to be restorers of relationships that have been strained or broken. And even by his entering Jerusalem and the way in which he did that day uh, on Palm Sunday, I think that he, he taught us something about restoration of relationships and reconciliation. I want us to consider what happened before what we just read there in John chapter 12. Because if you like, take a look at verse number 12 in John 12, it says this. It says, the next day, the next day, the great crowd. So what does that mean in terms of what happened the day before? Well, there's this interesting thing that takes place the day before. Jesus comes into Jerusalem by way of Bethany, this place where it was kind of an outpost of Jerusalem. Now, if you're in the city of Jerusalem, it's part of Jerusalem. But in that day and age, it was a bit of like a bedroom community to Jerusalem. Um, this might have been like the rest area on the interstate to Jerusalem in that day and age. And Jesus would have stayed there, and he would have stayed with some friends of his. And you may know these names, Mary and Martha and their brother. Uh, his name, some of you know his name. His name was Lazarus. Oh, man, many of you know. That's awesome. And so uh, Lazarus uh, had died, and Mary and Martha asked Jesus, begged Jesus to come and to restore him, and Jesus raises Lazarus to life. This is one of the many miracles that Jesus performed throughout his ministry, and here he is coming into his last seven days of ministry, and right before that, he restores a man who was dead to life. It was the thing that Mary and Martha wanted so much was to be restored back to their brother who had died. 
And so Jesus performs this great miracle in this great place called Bethany, and he restores Lazarus to life, but he also restores Lazarus to the relationship with his sisters. Are you with me? He restores that relationship as well. So in bringing him back to life, he not only restores his life, but he restores that family life. He restores people to each other who had already kind of mourned his, his passing and mourned the fact that he was going to be gone. And so we read in verse 12, the next day that that great crowd, or some of your, uh, some of your translations may say the large crowd, had come to the feast. They had heard that Jesus was coming and that he was on his way to Jerusalem. Now, just to give you the picture here, um, I, I heard one scholar compared this um, to a football game uh, that uh, in Jerusalem, maybe not a great analogy, all right, but in Jerusalem, people would have been so incredibly excited about this week because this was the week that people would come far and wide from all parts of Judea and they would come into Jerusalem to celebrate Passover, which was the, the Jewish uh, time of remembering what God had done by delivering the nation of Israel from the hands of the Egyptians reference our last series about Moses. And so uh, they were there in Jerusalem, and there was this buzz in the air that wouldn't have been abnormal except that the buzz that was happening in Jerusalem was around this person by the name of Jesus. And he was a rabbi. He was a Jewish rabbi. And the Jewish leaders respected him as such, but they were worried about him because Jesus was speaking less about rules, and he was speaking more about a relationship with God. And it made them incredibly nervous. See, the Jewish leaders of that day, they just wanted everything to be peaceful. They, they, they wanted just kind of, you know, status quo. Don't mess up what we've got. Rabbis, get in order. Like, you know, just don't do too much to rock the boat. How many of you are boat rockers? Like you come into your family or you come into your office and everyone's like, all right, here he comes, here she comes. They're coming in, they're rocking the boat. You don't have to raise your hand. Uh, maybe your spouse or friend will raise your hand for you. But anyway, so there's some boat rockers in our world and Jesus was one of those who was a boat rocker, but he came in and he was rocking the boat in terms of a new standard of relationship with God. One that was built on relationship and not rules. And this was something that put the fear of God literally in the Jewish leaders because they knew that this would mess up the status quo if it got out of hand. And all of a sudden on this Passover Sunday, there's this buzz around Jesus. It wasn't just the buzz around Passover. It wasn't just the buzz around the fact that you would see friends that you hadn't seen in a long time. People had heard that Jesus was coming. They had heard about the miracles they had, that he had performed. And they had just heard that his last miracle was raising someone from the dead. I don't know about you. I'd be one that would be talking about this, right? This was astounding. This was the thing that was on social media at the time. It was the big buzz, okay? And it was all over the place. And so verse 13, they took palm branches of John chapter 12. They took branches of palm trees. And they went out to meet him. And they shouted, Hosanna, Hosanna. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Blessed is the king of Israel. 
And there was a group of people among the many in Jerusalem. When Jesus came in, they began to hail him as the king, as the Messiah. That word Hosanna literally translated, it literally means, please save us. Come save us. They were acknowledging that this was God's son. This was the Messiah. And I'm sure among those religious leaders who were kind of watching what was going on, their fear went up a few notches. Because not only are there people following him, but they're crying out in recognition that this is the one who has come to save us. They even called him the king of Israel. We see in verse 14, Jesus found a donkey and he sat on it just as it is written. Do not be afraid, daughter Zion, talking about Jerusalem. See, your king is coming seated on a donkey's colt or on, on a donkey. And this was a passage from the book of Zechariah. The prophet Zechariah had prophesied 450 to 500 years earlier that the Messiah would come into Jerusalem riding a donkey. Riding the donkey's colt. And I don't know about you, but at this point in time, if, I'm not, if I have not yet believed in Jesus, and I've heard that he raised someone from the dead, and I heard that he's fulfilled this prophecy, this most important prophecy from Zechariah, I'm starting to pay attention. And I'm starting to consider maybe I need to believe in him. Verse 16, I love this part from John. John is essentially saying here in verse 16, we didn't quite understand this until Jesus came back because Jesus came back and he spent 40 days and he appeared to 500 people after he had died. He came back to earth and John was like, none of this made sense to us. We weren't really paying attention to this. And I think John's probably speaking for himself here. Maybe some of the other disciples got it, but John didn't. That's the way I would have presented it too. Like, yeah, we didn't understand. And there's people in the background going, yeah, yeah, you didn't understand, okay? So John is saying, we didn't understand this until Jesus came back, that this all was adding up. Verse 16, his disciples, they didn't understand it at first. Only after Jesus was glorified did they realize that these things had been written about him and that these things had been done to him. Look at verse 17, the crowd that had been with him when he called Lazarus out of the tomb and raised him from the dead, continued to bear witness. There was a group of people that had been with Jesus, and they saw him bring this man to life, and they were spreading the word about him. So this the kind of this whole like beginning of this, this uproar about Jesus was continuing. And look at verse 18. The reason why the crowd went to meet him, or many people, because they had heard that he had performed these signs, went out to meet him. And so the Pharisees, the religious leaders of the day, said to each other, see, this is getting us nowhere. Look how the whole world has gone after him. And I love that these Pharisees are shaking in their boots because they realize that their status quo of living is about ready to completely Come unraveled. The boat rocker has come in to the city of Jerusalem. And it's about ready to get really, really interesting for these religious leaders. And they look at each other and they say, what can we do? This crowd is following him. 
We can't believe it. We can't help it. There's not much we can do about it. See, we are gaining nothing, one version says. Look, the whole world has gone after Jesus. The way that Jesus came into Jerusalem itself is a full and utter turning upside down the culture of what a king was. It would have turned what the idea of maybe the Messiah would have been on its head. He came in riding on a donkey. Does that sound like the way a king would come in to Jerusalem in triumph? Not at all. In fact, one scholar calls it the A-triumphal entry. I like that. The A-triumphal entry. It wasn't really triumphal at all. Except that they were waving these palm branches and uh, laying down their cloaks, which was, which was an indication that the people uh, honored him as king, that they knew he was coming in as king. But Jesus rode into Jerusalem and came into Jerusalem on a donkey. Humble. Humble. He had come in through Bethany, and the word Bethany, the actual town named Bethany, it literally means in Hebrew, bet is house, and uh, the, the word ani is poor. It literally means poor house. Jesus came in through a place, came into Jerusalem through a place that was called the poor house. How would you like to live in Bethany? <laughs> that word in that day and age People would have understood that it meant poor house. Jesus constantly talked about the fact that we need to become poor, that we need to sell all that we have. He understood humility. Zechariah, in his message, in his prophecy, he used the word that in English that we have that Jesus came in and he rode in on a donkey and he was humble. And that's because we understand it through the way that... Um, uh, languages translated over the years, the Greek influence would have given us the English word humble. But in the original language in Hebrew, it would have meant something much more than that. It would have meant not just humble, but it would have meant unassuming, meek, or poor. Now, here's the thing. I want you to hear this, Christ follower. The fact that Jesus came into Jerusalem this way, the fact that he rode in from this place called Bethany, he was crying out that he was going to do something different. The, the way that we understood and understand what a king is, he was going to turn it on his head. Jesus completely undid the understanding of what it means to be a king and what it means to be victorious and what it means to be a warrior he totally undid that. And there's a couple things that he did in this triumphal entry. One, he, he showed that God is humble. Listen, I want you to hear that today. Because so many of you have, whether you're listening, whether you're out on the backstage patio or here in the house, so many of you have this understanding that God is this proud judgmental and he does judge and I don't want to confuse you on that but our version of judgmental and that he shows no grace that he is this strong man 
that intends to power over you. And I want you to hear that when Jesus came into Jerusalem and he undid what we think of as a king, he reset what we understand of God. He reset what we understand of God. He was, secondly, he was drawn. People were drawn to Jesus. They were drawn to what he had done, who he was, the miracles that he was performing. And by the way, side note, all of the miracles that Jesus performed, I want you to think about it, they were all intended to give glory to God, but they all were also intended to help people in some form or fashion, even turning the water into wine. That definitely helped that wedding party, didn't it? All of those miracles were intended to help people. And so Jesus, he was drawn, people were drawn to Jesus. And Jesus, in his coming into Jerusalem and resetting the idea of a king and resetting our idea of God, he was essentially resetting the relationship between us and man. He was essentially resetting the relationship, the terms of the relationship between us and God. No longer, once he, once he would die a week later and rise again, or five days later and rise again a week later, no longer did we have to adhere to all of these rules, most of which were made up by man anyway. But we just needed to have a personal relationship with him. And Jesus, in his triumphal entry, reset that and I want you to hear this lastly today. He desires for you to be his friend. And there are three take-home things I want you to remember today. And that's the first one, is that Jesus desires for you to be his friend. And I know that may sound silly, that may sound trite, but it is absolutely true. Listen, I want you to hear that. There is nothing wrong with saying that. There is nothing trite or silly or childish. Jesus does. When a personal relationship with you, he wants to be your friend. He even said so. In John 15, verse 15, he says this, No longer do I call you servants. It says, For the servant does not know what his master is doing. He doesn't know his master's business. Instead, he says, I have called you friends. For everything that I learned from my father, I have made known to you. Have you ever thought about the fact that God wants to be your friend? Sounds silly in our world, doesn't it? It sounds trite in our world, but there is so much there. That breaks down the walls of who we kind of come out of life and into life and maybe from our religious background thinking that God is this someone somewhere in some kind of place that we don't understand and he's far from us he doesn't want that he wants to be near listen i want you to hear this today he wants to be near to you he desires to have a relationship with you and so the first take home is is that jesus wants to be your friend the second thing and this is where it gets a little more serious and a little bit heavier he prioritized reconciliation Jesus prioritized reconciliation. If he was about ready to come in in this seven-day journey, in the last seven days of his life, if he came into Jerusalem resetting the relationship between us and God, even in the way he came in and the place that he came in through, if he was resetting that, he also was prioritizing 
reconciliation. Now, this is where it gets a little tougher for us. Back in Matthew chapter 5, verses 23 through 25, I want you to check this out. Therefore, he says, if you're offering a gift at the altar, this is the way that the Jews would worship as they would bring gifts to the altar. And he says, and there, remember that your brother or your sister has something against you. He says, leave your gift there in front of the altar. And he says, what is that next word? He says, first. First, go and be, what's that next word? Reconciled to them. Then come and offer your gift. Essentially, Jesus is saying, look, it is more important that you reconcile with someone that you have broken with or have had a break with. It is more, it is more important. It is of a higher priority than worship. <laughs> wow. That's a tough one. Because here in reestablishing everything about our relationship with God, he is also calling us to be people who prioritize reconciliation. Verse 25 of Matthew chapter 5, he says, Come to terms quickly with your accuser. Settle matters quickly with your adversary who is taking you to court. Do it while you're still together on the way. Or your adversary may hand you over to the judge, and the judge may hand you over to the officer, and you may be thrown into prison. Whoa, he thought it all through, didn't he? <laughs> He's essentially saying, try to settle the matter before it gets to the legal status. Let's get this resolved. In Matthew 18, he gives us a way to resolve it. Church, I want you to hear this. This is for us. This is for us. In verses 15 through 17, he says, If your brother sins against you, if your brother or sister sins, go and point out their fault. Just between the two of you, if they listen to you, you've won them over. But if they will not listen, take one or two others along so that every matter may be established by the testimony of two or three witnesses. If they still refuse to listen, tell it to the church. Whoa. <laughs> and if they refuse to listen even to the church, treat them as you would a pagan or a tax collector. <laughs> Don't you love how he throws tax collectors in with pagans. <laughs> Sorry for some of you who may have uh, been a tax collector in the past. Um, it was worse in Jesus' day, I promise. And Jesus here is saying, if you can at all avoid this kind of like, you know, break in the relationship that you should, and he gives us a way, and the three-step way is essentially to go to the person individually, and if they won't hear you out, then go with someone else, and if they won't hear you out, come in front of the church. Now, we don't practice that exactly. We do in an indirect way. Um, we, we will meet together with people who are having major problems within the church, but here's what he's saying to us. But we won't bring you up here, which is, I think, really good. All right, so, but what he's saying is, is that you and I as people, if he has reset and if he has reconciled with us, that we should go through a process of reconciling with others. If God did it, then he modeled it for us and we should follow it, shouldn't we, church? And that leads me to the third and the last point today, and that is, is Jesus 
not only encourages us, but he commands us to be reconcilers. Jesus wants to be your friend. He wants that relationship with you. Secondly, he wants us to be ministers of reconciliation. But thirdly, he commanded it. The apostle Paul is writing to the church in Corinth in 2 Corinthians 5, 16 through 21. And he writes this. So from now on, we regard no one from a worldly point of view. Though we once regarded Christ in this way, we do so no longer. Then if anyone is in Christ Jesus, the new creation has come. There's that newness of the restoration. The old is gone. The new is here. And he writes, all of this is from God who reconciled us to himself. Through Christ. And he gave us the ministry of Say that last word with me, reconciliation. That God was reconciling the world to himself in Christ, not counting people's sins against them. And he has committed to us, and he has committed to us the message of reconciliation. We are therefore Christ's ambassadors, as though God were making his appeal through us. So we implore you on Christ's behalf, be first reconciled to God. God made him who had no sin to be sin for us so that secondly, we may become the righteousness of God and be reconciled to each other. And so yes, on Palm Sunday in 2022, we see in Jesus' triumphal entry or a triumphal entry, if you will, that we are to be reconcilers of relationship because Jesus was with us. St. Clement of Alexandria said, for the sake of each of us, he, Jesus, laid down his life worth no less than the universe. He demands of us in return our lives for the sake of each other. Back in Matthew 18, it begins with, if your brother or sister sinned against you. I think sometimes in our relationship with each other, whether it's in the church or whether it's out there, or whether it's in family you know, or at Thanksgiving dinner or wherever it may be, I think that sometimes we view a, a, a fractured relationship through the lens of our feelings and the way that we want it, maybe kind of this expectation that we have, but it's really not sin. So we overcomplicate things, but more times than not, it's the other way around. That we've done something or someone has done something to us. And the one that's the victim, I believe, has the responsibility to go to that person and offer reconciliation. In church, you and I have been in situations where We've offered reconciliation. Maybe it was to someone in our past or someone in our maybe you know, near past or maybe it's someone that we have a relationship with and it's recent or it's today and they don't want to reconcile. But here's the thing. If you have made the move, I believe that you've done in the spirit of what God did with us all that is necessary to help restore that relationship. And you've made that move of being a person who reconciles. And so today, the tough question that I have to ask in the spirit of what we've been talking about in terms of Jesus being 
the one who restores us. Is who do you have in your life that you need to reconcile with? Who do you have in your life who maybe that relationship has been broken? Maybe it's been fractured. Maybe it's been beyond just tension, but there actually is a problem that needs to be solved. And have you been the one to make that first move towards reconciliation? I think in the spirit of what Jesus did by going to the cross and walking in, well, not walking, riding in Jerusalem that day, I think that it is time for us to be people who are the ministers of reconciliation. Today, for some of you, what that may mean is, is that you need to accept the first thing that I talked about today, and that is, is that Jesus wants to be your friend. Maybe for you, it's accepting that God wants a relationship with you, that he has reconciled your sins on the cross. And you have nothing, nothing in between you and him other than your sin, which he took to the cross. For others, it is absolutely making the first move of reconciliation. That's my challenge. What name comes to your mind? What person popped into your mind this morning? It's time to be bold, to stand up, to give God the worth that his sacrifice cost. And go to that person and begin that process today. Today, Father, We give you praise. We give you glory for being the one who offers reconciliation, spiritual reconciliation. God, you came into Jerusalem prepared to go to the cross, to die for our sins, to rise again from the dead so that we could be reconciled to you. There's nothing, nothing that would give that act more honor than for us to inspect our lives and find out where there's a broken relationship. To make the move, to go to that person, to take up the responsibility of the ministry of reconciliation that you gave us. Father, I pray that you would be with us right now, God, whether it's someone in our, in our lives right now or maybe it's someone in our past. Maybe someone today, the, the name that is brought to your mind today is someone that you haven't talked to in years or decades. And maybe today, God's prompting you, hey, it's time to call them. It's time to reach out. Maybe for you, it's time to offer forgiveness or maybe for you it's time to receive the forgiveness that someone else has already offered father i pray that you would break through the stubborn hearts of our lives god and i'm i'm one of them help us not to be so easily offended god i pray that we would take seriously these moments when we that we have when we can go to our brothers and sisters and we can be restored. Father, I thank you. We are restored to you by your wonderful, amazing act of love on the cross. Thank you for coming into Jerusalem that Sunday 
Thank you for being willing to go through the week that you went through, to go through the brutal death that you would go through on Friday. And thank you for rising again from the dead so that we can have eternal life if we put our trust and our belief in you. We just give you praise for that right now. In Jesus' name, I pray. And all God's people said.